Hi everybody, I'm Katie. And I'm Rhiannon. And welcome to Haunting Cases. Why, hello. Why, hello. <laughs> I don't do it as good as you do. <laughs> Sorry. It just takes some practice to sound like Ree. <laughs> it does. It does take a lot of practice to sound like Ree. Oh. Well, as an update, I'm at my parents' house currently because they're on their anniversary trip. Happy anniversary to them. Happy anniversary, Katie's parents. <laughs> yeah. And at the time that this is coming out, it's actually my birthday. So happy Woo! fucking early birthday to me, even though it's not early birthday anymore because it comes out on my birthday. So happy fucking birthday to me. <laughs> happy fucking birthday, Katie. <laughs> Thank you, Ree. <laughs> anyway. Uh... I don't have much new news other than they have decided that they're going to take Thackeray for the time being or forever because they love him. And my dad has fallen in love with this boy, too. So I'm now back down to being an only cat parent. (laughs) Anyway, Bree, what's going on in your life? Oh... Oh no. <laughs> Work and podcasting research and uh crazy cat. The the cat is being a little turd. <laughs> <laughs> he started like peeing on dog beds, which you've heard about. Oh and no. we took him to the vet and it's not an infection, it's like a behavioral thing. We're pretty sure it's territorial. And so we're, like, working through that, and so we've tried to give him easier access to the litter box, so there is, like, no excuses in terms of there is a litter box available very easily. (laughs) And then also trying to give him some more things of his own so he's not sharing with the dog as much, because before he didn't, he had a cat bed, but it wasn't in the bedroom where we sleep at night, it was in the living room. So now he has a second bed in the bedroom that's just for him because before he would either lay on our bed or he'd lay in the dog bed. And so we think that might have been an issue of him being like, you mean I got to share this bed with the dog? So <laughs> now he's got his own little cat bed, which he likes very much. We're just trying to figure out where to put it because like of the two places we've tried putting it, he doesn't seem very fond of those locations. But he likes the bed, just not where we're putting the beds. So we need to find another place to put the bed. <laughs> So it's kind of been that game of how do we make the cat happy so he stops peeing on dog beds because it's driving me insane. (laughs) So that's where we're at right now is I've just lost my mind. (laughs) It's gone. It's not, well, I don't know when it's coming back (laughs) and we're trying to resolve the situation. (laughs) I I completely understand you because Salem would do the exact same thing when we lived over here. Like she peed in the bedroom she actually marked the dog bed that's behind me and in like a desperate attempt in effort i got like the uh urine eliminator spray from nature's miracle and i went to town with that 
And then I like sprayed it down in the backyard too. And I'm like, you better not freaking stain or smell bad. It, it's fine now. It has like a little bit of that smell, but it's not bad. The one thing that I noticed that she absolutely hated was Nature's Miracle has a no spray spray. And it's typically okay. used for male cats, but she doesn't like it. And it's like the one thing she does not like because this cat will go after peppermint. She'll go after citrus. Anything of your like <laughs> natural things that they're like, oh, don't use this because cats hate it. My cat is weird. <laughs> oh, yeah, I might have to look into that. We did get the deodorizer spray so that the pee smell goes away. Mm-hmm. And I also went to town on every dog bed that that cat peed on. I sprayed that spray all over. So everything smells fine now. Like there's no smell, which is great. But it did not resolve the peeing issues. <laughs> you know, I vaguely yeah, remember Watson yeah. sending a message in the chat that was like, please help. <laughs> I was like, what is going yeah. on? I'm like, oh, oh. Yeah, we've, we were having that issue for a while. And it was getting to the point where I was like pulling my hair out because I was constantly cleaning dog like thoroughly cleaning dog beds and then spraying them down with this like deodorizer and i was just like i said i was losing my mind and my mind's officially gone <laughs> no i don't but blame yeah, you this cat i love the cat i love the cat but i'm like can you please stop peeing outside the litter box please and so i the the next thing we're gonna try is uh, we use pine litter and so instead of getting, we're wondering if it's a texture thing, because apparently I read somewhere that kittens sometimes like softer textures, and he definitely seems mm-hmm. to like soft things. And then we got the pellets instead of the powdery stuff. So we're going to try the powdery stuff and see if that's more enticing of the the soft texture on his little kitty beans. <laughs> so and meanwhile, I'm like Salem pee in the litter box. And I like just put her in there. I'm like, this is where you pee. <laughs> Yeah, I've tried that. <laughs> we both have work. upper respiratory it's, problems. Yeah, we can't do the clay. <laughs> I know. And that's why I'm like, you don't get clay. Mama can't breathe if there's clay. We don't do clay. <laughs> mom so, can't uh, breathe. Plus, mom <laughs> hates sand, so I don't want it on my feet. <laughs> and I'm like, pee in your letterbox. I also am, like, slightly allergic to cats. I used to be much more allergic, but thankfully, as I've gotten older, it's gone away, so I'm not anywhere near as allergic, but I'm also allergic enough that if he's, like, in my face, I start having allergy problems. So that's the other thing, is this darn cat's like, let me lay on your pillow, and I'm like, you can lay anywhere but my pillow, not on (laughs) the pillow, and where does he always want to lay? on my pillow and I'm like you know that you're not allowed here and you still choose to lay here and somehow I still love you <laughs> yeah I'm like Salem's getting to the point where she probably needs another bath because oh my god I also have the unfortunate hereditary gene that I am allergic to cats <laughs> and she's like I love you mom I want to be in your face 24 <laughs> 7 and meanwhile right now when it's like i go outside and i'm dying because things are blooming and like things are like blowing their freaking sex pollen everywhere 
Yep, yep. I'm like, I'm dying from that, and then I get home, and I'm like, oh, solace in my home, and then cat, I'm like, ugh! <laughs> I can't breathe. My nose is in like in a permanent state of just running. I'm like, oh my God. People like at the grocery store are looking at me like, you have COVID. I'm like, I don't. I don't. I'm allergic to the world and my cat hair, okay? I, I can't. <laughs> I feel that. I feel that very strongly. Yeah. Yes. And actually, it's not even the cat hair that, like, heavily bothers me or my dad, because my dad's the one that passed the gene on to me. Thank you, Father. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for that. Um, it's the dander that comes up. Mm. So if they get a bath and they're brushed regularly, we're good for a while. Anything outside of that, like, in the realm of they're starting to get a little EG and starting to smell bad, I'm like, shower. <laughs> yes sorry i'm like thackeray's trying to like run over my keys and disturb our conversation so i'm gonna go ahead and run interference and run our trigger warnings too so we'll be right back <laughs> sounds good while we understand that some individuals listen for the entertainment aspect of true crime it's important to remember that these are real people with families and friends who may still be suffering from their loss. These stories are not meant to open old wounds or cause further emotional damage to those involved. We remind you to please be respectful, do not dox or contact those involved with cases. While paranormal occurrences and urban legends may be sources of tourism, please be considerate if you visit one of these locations. Do not engage in trespassing and be sure to ask for permission if you plan on recording. Be aware of your surroundings and travel safely. The cases discussed in this podcast may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. All right.
we're back. I hope you all enjoy those trigger warnings. And when I say catch all re, I mean catch all all. Oh, <laughs> great. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I do need a glass of wine. I warned you. <laughs> I should have a glass of wine. It's my fucking birthday. But instead, I'm drinking Gatorade. <laughs> I'm, I'm being a good girl and drinking water over here, trying to be hydrated. <laughs> My mom bought the wrong Gatorade, and she's like, you need to drink this. It has too much berry to it. I'm like, all right, I won't argue with you. I'm fine with that. <laughs> Anyways, let's get started today with something that we actually have not done in a couple of episodes. Like, I don't think we've done this in like three or four ish episodes it's been a while it's been a hot minute since vocab lessons with katie oh yeah yeah it has been a little while it, it has been a little <laughs> while but there were a couple like definitions in here that i noticed that either we've talked about before or like we haven't talked about before and i just neglected to cover them so <laughs> My apologies. First off, second, let's get into these vocab lessons. <laughs> so the first one that I have for you today is APHIS, and that is the Automated Fingerprint Identification System. It is a biometric solution consisting of a computer database of fingerprint records, which is able to search and compare them to identify known and unknown fingerprints the modern IAFACs are able to search over a billion fingerprints in a single second. And according to algorithms for this computer database, most of these comparisons usually range at 90 to 100% accuracy, which is pretty freaking cool. However, We'll do the other one first before I go into this. But the other one that I have for you today is the IAPIS, which is the Integrated Automated Fingerprint Identification System. Now, this one allows you to do a couple of different things. The first is it works as a repository for criminal history information, including fingerprints, criminal subject photographs, as well as information regarding military and civilian federal employees and other individuals as authorized by Congress. Second, it provides identification of individuals based off of fingerprint submissions through both a 10 print fingerprint card and latent prints that might be found on a scene or on certain items that pertain to criminal or civil trials. Third, it provides tentative identification of individuals based on descriptive information such as a name, birthday, distinctive body markings, and identification numbers. Now, that being said, with APHIS and IAPHIS, there are certain limitations, and usually it cannot be used as a full-out search engine similar to CODIS. You usually have fingerprints ran through these types of identification systems and then an investigator comes back and does the heavy like handed work a forensic latent print examiner will come back and do the latent work and they go through a system called ACE V 
which is the analysis, comparison, examination, and then verification of your work to make sure that you are getting a 100% accuracy or at least a 99 and above for fingerprints. Since things can change with fingerprints, they are a deep tissue based identification. However, things such as scars or deep cuts can very much alter those types of prints. So you may see some differences as time goes on for individuals. Okay. The next one is one that I mentioned in Amy Lynn Bradley's episode, but I didn't really go in depth as far as what it is. And that is human trafficking. Now, oh, yeah, I guess we didn't do a deep dive into yeah. what exactly that means. So human trafficking can be compared to modern day like slavery. It involves the exploitation of people through force, coercion, threats, and deception that includes violation of human rights and abuses towards it. There is a large umbrella of categories under human trafficking, but today we'll be focusing on sex trafficking. Now, sex trafficking has victims being coerced or forced into sex or sexual acts through debt, bondage, or threats behind the front of commercial businesses. Trafficking in this space occurs when victims engage in commercial sexual acts under duress of force, fraud, or coercion. The last vocab lesson I have for you today is familicide, also known as family annihilation or family annihilators. These are people who kill multiple members of their own families, such as spouses, children, siblings, and parents. Vocab lessons out. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, quick comment. Uh, I think it's also important just to distinguish when we're talking about human trafficking and especially sex trafficking, that that's... Um, very important that we're putting emphasis on the people are being forced to do the sex work that there are people who choose to do sex work and that is completely okay but we're specifically talking about people being forced into that kind of work oh absolutely very much emphasis on the force especially when it comes to sex trafficking like an individual is definitely being forced into this. This is usually not their choice. It's usually under a threat of something bad's going to happen to you or your family. You owe me money, so on and so forth. It's a very frightening experience, and we'll get a little bit more into that as we go through the story because there's a part in this that definitely plays into what happens in the United States as far as sex trafficking goes. Uh. Because you may think that because you live in the United States that it doesn't happen here and I'll be the bearer of bad news. It fucking does. Definitely, yeah. So, our story today starts in Scottsdale, Arizona. And this is a town just east of the metropolitan area and state capital, Phoenix. Now, Rhee and I have both lived in the Phoenix area. <laughs> so I'm making a weird facial expression. <laughs> I'm like, your, your eyes just bulged from your head. <laughs> I was 
like, that's not too far from where I used to live. That's great. Mm -hmm. I don't know when you moved there. I moved to Arizona in 2014, like two days after I graduated from high school. I think it was 2011. Yeah, I went before high school, so it was definitely earlier than that. I want to say it was 2011. Okay. So it's 8.42 a.m. on April 10th of 2001. And a call is made to 911. A house in a quiet neighborhood just off of 74th Place and Oak Streets explodes into flames. Neighbors are running for their garden hoses in an attempt to control the fire from spreading until help can arrive. First responders arrive on the scene, and this fire is extending upwards and engulfing this house with flames upwards to 20 feet high. Whoa. Immediately, the fire department realizes that this is a natural gas fire, and they start to work on extinguishing the flames. Now I'm going to pause real quick, because most of us that live here in Arizona know that natural gas is a very rare animal here. And from the explanation I got when I first moved here, it was because the damn rock's too hard to dig into. (laughs) Which is also coincidentally part of what KJZZ, like, news radio gave to. It notes that basements and natural gases are rare in Arizona due to the cost, the soil, and the regulations that must be followed when digging into Arizona's soil. So... (laughs) I'm like, the first time I heard this story, I was like, natural gas in Arizona? What is this? Because everything I've had has been electric, even in my apartment complexes over in Phoenix that have been there for years. Yeah, I was thinking that was a little odd. (laughs) Yeah. So it's possible. It's not insanely popular, but it is possible. And in this house, there was a natural gas appliance basically hooked up to it. So, I'm pausing. We're back to the story now. (laughs) While firefighters are working on this fire, law enforcement start to canvas the surrounding scene and speak to neighbors and try to get any information regarding the family that lives here. What they found is that the home belongs to the Fisher family, which consisted of 40-year-old Robert, 38-year-old Mary, and their two children, 12-year-old Brittany and 10-year-old Bobby. Now, just some background information on Robert and Mary. These two were high school sweethearts, and they were married in 1987, and they had their children a few years after that. Mary was a very sweet and loving individual, and she was highly involved with the church in her area and served with the children's ministry, where her children eventually became very good friends with their Baptist pastor's children, and that's basically all I could find on Mary. Okay, okay. So we're going to focus mainly on Robert at this point because he's the person that I could find the most information on now. Robert was an avid hunter and outdoorsman. He originally served in the United States Navy. However, that career path kind of failed when he was unable to meet the expectations of a Navy SEAL. He later worked as a firefighter in California and was also part of their like medical division from what I could find until a back injury forced him to leave the department. This injury also caused him to have at least one surgery. Ugh, that's terrible because that sounds like he was doing some really important work and 
back injuries are no fun at all. Yeah, absolutely. And according to sources, this back injury really affected Robert, which I can only imagine because they are very painful. They're very debilitating. And it left a lot of strain on his and Mary's relationship moving forward. Definitely, I can see that. Mm -hmm. It's hard to support a loved one going through an extensive amount of pain, but also just the America's medical system, a lot of people end up racked with really high bills and medical debt, which can definitely put strain on a relationship. And then also if you have a partner who has limited mobility or is recovering from a very intense surgery, then you have to kind of step up to the plate to assist them oftentimes with a lot of just what they need to do, you know, getting around the house, doing whatever they got to do or hire somebody to do that. So I could definitely see how that could put strain on a relationship. Oh, absolutely. In the late 1980s, Robert was hired as a weed sparer. And according to the employer at this business, Robert complained regularly of back pain while on the job, but was ultimately a really quiet individual and a really good employee across all records. He did leave the position to pursue a career in the medical field, however, and he moved into a position at the Mayo Clinic as a nurse or a technician, according to some sources, they differ between the two. With this information on the investigators list, they immediately called the Mayo Clinic to see if Robert is at work, hoping to get a hold of someone who lives at this property to let them know what's happening at the home and gain understanding if anyone is still inside this house. They find out from this call that Robert was not at work, and in the hours that it took to gather other information regarding the family and even reach out to his employers at the Mayo Clinic, the fire had finally been extinguished, allowing the investigators and firemen to enter the home, and what they found was absolutely terrifying. Still in their beds are three dead bodies. Oh, my God. The two smaller ones are determined to be those of Bobby and Brittany. And the oh. adult body is presumed to be that of Mary. Now, it's kind of like back and forth in some articles on if it's Mary or if it's Robert, because these remains are very charred and you can't really tell any identifying features at this point, though, they did discover that Mary's forerunner is missing and possibly Robert. They're definitely leaning more towards Robert. So a all-points bulletin is put out for Robert in the vehicle, figuring he's either running errands for the family or he's on his way to work and unaware of what's happened at his home and that his family is dead. Oh, gosh. That's horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. During this point, law enforcement begins gathering more backstory on the family by talking to those who lived closest to them. And ultimately, they found out that while they appeared to be your normal American family, there was a very dark side that many of their friends and family members didn't know about. Neighbors talked about regular arguments between the couple that would lead to screaming matches between the two, uh. and ultimately at its peak leave Mary screaming at Robert and Robert simply shutting down and leaving. He would pack his things usually and head to the northern part of the Arizona wilderness where he'd cool down for a couple days off the grid before coming back home to Scottsdale. Wow. Yeah. 
And I know that we've covered at least one domestic violence case. And I know that we've talked a little bit about the cycle of violence, but just as like a refresher real quick, the cycle of violence starts with tensions growing, leading to arguments and physical fights. Then we'll move into like a breakup period where the two may become separated of their own means or separated by individuals such as law enforcement or family before returning home and moving into a honeymoon phase where basically everything is wonderful for a while and then it will ultimately move back into tensions are growing, arguments are start, starting and it continues to go like that. So this being said, these trips that Robert took obviously didn't help anything that was going on in the relationship and it wasn't long before the two were back to fighting. Oh, yeah, it definitely sounds like it wasn't the healthiest of relationships. Another report did mention that Robert had apparently had an affair with a masseuse at one point. Oh. And it was basically after he had had back surgery, he was looking for a way to ease some of the pain and went to this masseuse and fell into temptation. Now, we're going to pause again. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it's important to understand that not all massage parlors are reputable and there are quite a few of illicit massage parlors throughout the United States that are used for commercial front sex trafficking. They're very popular, unfortunately, in Arizona. And I believe we had a bust not too long ago, but it happens regularly. Yeah, I was definitely warned about that when I moved to Arizona. People told me to be wary of that and be careful of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I believe because I listened to Crime Junkie's coverage of this story, and this was the first time I actually like heard the story it was from Crime Junkie. And according to Brit, at the time that they had covered the story, Massage Envy, a quote-unquote reputable business, had actually had a lawsuit out against them for sexual harassment of their clients. Oh, gosh. Mm -hmm. So be wary of where you're going to get your massages from. But on other notes, for commercial front sex trafficking, these victims working in these businesses are usually posing as massage parlors, are recruited or abducted from foreign countries. These individuals are then coerced through violent and nonviolent threats to perform sexual services to clients. These victims will typically live on site to provide services at any time or at a venue where their trafficker is able to monitor and or control their movements. Housing arrangements usually lead victims to accumulating more debt to their traffickers for housing and essential needs passports and identification cards are usually kept from victims and they're relocated regularly and kept in fear of local police to prevent them from reaching out, talking, or asking for help. These types of parlors are usually part of larger networks of sex trafficking in the area. So keep in mind if you do go to a massage parlor, things don't seem to be reputable, leave and possibly contact help to let somebody know what's going on, especially if you have people trying to communicate with you in a way that they might be asking for help from you. 
I would definitely contact the police on that circumstance. Yeah, unfortunately, these criminals involved in sex trafficking definitely seem like they've been doing it for a while and they know what they're doing and they uh, just, it's horrifying what they get away with in these situations. Absolutely. And unfortunately, like I said, this is something that we see in the United States too. It's not just third world countries that you see people being sex trafficked to and like certain like things that you would see in the movies like for example taken like it's not always that instance like sometimes it's strip clubs sometimes it's massage parlors other times it's just plain out sex work definitely so for sure. once again just as a clarification sex trafficking and sex work typically do not align sex workers usually have a say in what they're doing Sex trafficking victims are usually forced into the sexual act. Definitely important to make that clarification. So this altercation with the masseuse left Robert with a urinary tract infection. However, there are other articles that state that he received a sexually transmitted disease which Robert later confessed to his pastor about and soon after Mary and stated that it was the result of an affair. With coming into knowledge of this, Mary obviously kicked Robert out of the house, but unfortunately ultimately reconciled and decided to continue their rocky relationship. Upon trying to get help with these marital matters from their pastor, Robert states that divorce wasn't an option as he had a difficult time with his parents' divorce when he was 15, and he never wanted to go through that again, nor did he want his children to go through that. Additionally, there are stories being told by friends and neighbors of Robert's odd behavior, including one time where he was seen swimming across the lake holding a bowie knife in his teeth during a fishing trip. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of thing you'd see in a movie, not something you'd see just your, your neighbor or your friend just doing. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I don't know how I would feel about that, sir. What are you doing? Yeah, that's a little concerning. <laughs> Another instance was during a hunting trip, and with this like hunting partner, his hunting partner had turned around to do something, and when he turned back... Robert had like killed an elk and then proceeded to smear the blood of the animal all over his face and body. Oh, okay. And his hunting companions just standing there like the fuck you doing, man. So there's some very odd behavior going on from Robert. Yeah. Sounds like he's been watching a, a little too much. Uh, I don't even know what that would be. Action movies, suspense, suspense movies. Suspense know. movies. He, he's oh getting God. into some weird shit. It's, like. it's a little weird. I'm like, okay, maybe we don't talk to Robert anymore. <laughs> so, unfortunately, with all of this information coming up, police soon learn from investigators on the scene that Mary, Brittany, and Bobby's throats were all slashed ear to ear prior to the explosion. And according to many oh. sources, the slash was at a point that these bodies were nearly decapitated. Oh, wow. That's intense. Yeah. 
very intense. And not only that, but Mary had also been shot in the back of the head execution style. Oh my gosh. In addition to this, there was also findings of rigging for the fire in which the furnace was basically like unplugged where the gas line came in, allowing for the natural gas to release into the home. A flammable liquid was poured throughout the home to act as an accelerant to the fire, and a candle was lit and left as an ignition starter. Oh, my gosh. Ugh. So, with all of this in mind, Robert had now moved from being a possible secondary victim of a horrible tragedy to suspect number one for three counts of first-degree murder. Investigators suspected that Robert set the house fire himself in an attempt to destroy evidence of the crimes. However, Scottsdale police detective John Heinzelman believes that it was a delay tactic to the discovery of the remains or police going after him, stating he knew the bodies were going to be found. Mm, okay. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. A neighbor also came forward discussing a fight that had happened the previous evening. And based on the information, investigators presumed that the murders occurred anywhere between the hours of 9.30 to 10.15 p.m. Now, this neighbor does note that this was the type of argument that would have resulted in Robert leaving and going camping for a couple of days. At 10.43 p.m. that evening, Robert appeared on an ATM camera along with Mary's Toyota 4Runner. He withdrew a total of $208 before completely disappearing. So when the fire actually started, I'm assuming then the fire must have happened at, at night then, not in the morning. If he had killed them at night, did he start the whole fire situation right away? So, from what I could, like, infer on that situation, what most likely happened is that the murders occurred. They are not sure if it happened before or after the withdrawal from the ATM. I see, okay. They presumed before, and he most likely would have poured the accelerant first where it needed to go, pulled the gas line, and had a candle lit in another room. Far away, so as the house filled with gas, it had a chance to, like, accumulate and grow before it actually hit the flame and ignited the whole place. Okay, I see. Yeah. So, it would have been a while, but ultimately, it sounds like the explosion didn't occur until about 8.30 in the morning. Okay. Right? Now, police speculate that Robert is responsible for the murders. However, they don't know for sure at this point as there's a lot of questions that remain unsolved and unanswered without Robert. So, in the following days, the community shows outpouring support to the family of the victims, and the cul-de-sac where the Fishers once resided turns into a memorial site filled with balloons, signs, photos, and other mementos to honor the family. Mary's parents were actually baffled by the thought that Robert could have done anything like this and stood by him. Mary's father, Bill Cooper, even took to reporters saying, wherever you are, Robert, we love you. Just come home. I don't know what's going on. We don't know anything for sure, but we'd like to hear from you. Please, Robert. 
end quote. So they don't believe he was responsible? At the time, they don't believe that he's responsible. Wow. Oh, I guess they had a lot of respect for their son-in-law. Yeah. From what I heard on Crime Junkies coverage of this, because I went out and found a lot of my own information and then just kind of like filled in a little bit where they had differentiating information. From what I heard on their coverage, from what they saw on old family videotapes and heard from like the family, they were absolutely baffled that anything could have happened like this. Like he loved his kids. He loved his wife. He, he wouldn't have done this. Yeah. Yeah, and that brings up the point you mentioned earlier that the friends and family didn't know the whole story of what was mm-hmm. going on and and that that's a really good point since in a lot of these toxic relationships where abuse is going on, a lot of the time family and friends may not know what exactly is going on that the uh people in the relationship are able to mask it from them unfortunately where people may just assume that the relationship is all rainbows and sunshine but it's not uh so that makes a little more more sense yeah absolutely and what i saw on the wikipedia page that actually covered robert's case and more about him personally is that he wasn't really like in deep with the family on really either side because he was afraid of making connections for them to come to an end. Mm. Which can be debatable because it was also noted that he was very controlling with his family. Yeah, and I mean, isn't that considered to be one of the tactics that somebody in an abusive relationship can take is by basically trying to get the family off from other family mm-hmm. members that's a way to prevent other family members from understanding what's really going on here mm-hmm. or getting involved in the situation or helping exactly. out a victim yeah absolutely so the Arizona Department of Public Safety issued a statewide bulletin to arrest Robert as a person of interest on the case on April 14th of 2001 However, it would be another six days before anything would come of this. On April 20th, investigators shifted their focus to Arizona's high country, believing that Robert was hiding out in the area's mountains, caves, and canyon systems by Payson. SWAT teams, along with the search and rescue units, were called to scour the area, but they found no evidence of Robert being in any of the search locations. It was actually a tip that came in from a camper that led police to Mary's Toyota 4Runner, which was tucked into the Tonto National Forest just east of Young, Arizona. The SUV had been wiped clean, and just outside was a member of the family they weren't expecting to see. The family dog, Blue, a two-year-old Queensland healer mix. Aww. Blue had taken shelter under the vehicle and was in a hungry and agitated state due to his face being filled with quills from a porcupine. Oh, oh, oh poor little fur baby. I know. Oh, that had to hurt. Yeah, poor thing. Poor baby. I will say that they believe that the car was not there longer than 24 hours just due to pine needles not really being on it. Oh, okay, yeah. So... 
with that being said, Robert Fisher himself was nowhere in sight. And Heinzelman noted that the area the vehicle was found in was extremely remote and has a lot of cave systems around it. However, if he had committed suicide or walked off into the woods, why was the dog still at the car? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess I would almost look at it as if he had walked off and done whatever and just kind of let the dog go and not Mm -hmm. really held on to the dog, that perhaps the dog went back to the car for shelter and because it was something familiar. But, I mean, who knows, really? Who knows? And Heinzelman theorizes that Robert must have gotten into a secondary vehicle and left abandoning the dog at the scene. Mm. But wouldn't that mean that a secondary person would have followed Robert up there? This really is, like, messy in all sorts of standards of which way you go. But Heinzelman, along with a lot of other investigators, wish that they can make heads or tails of the situation. This was a very popular camping and hunting spot, well out of cell phone range, that Robert knew very well. Another thing that is mentioned is less than a mile away is the Apache Indian Reservation, or Apache Native American Reservation, depending on which source you go with. I prefer Native American, which is a sovereign nation that officers don't travel into. So with Native American reservations, typically when you have law enforcement coming in, they need to have an escort or it has to be FBI based because then it becomes a federal case. A massive search was done of the area where the vehicle was found, but Robert was never found. Inside the vehicle, they did find the Black Oakland Raiders baseball cap that he had been seen wearing at the ATM. That really complicates the situation, then, if it's near the Native American reservation. I don't even know how quickly or easy that process could potentially be to to try to either arrange for an escort or try to coordinate with the law enforcement on the reservation to see if they could Mm -hmm. maybe coordinate some sort of search of the reservation themselves. It's a very messy situation, and it's part of the reason why there's a huge issue with missing and murdered indigenous individuals because you have two different governments, per se, kind of like fighting against each other to do something, yeah. And then ultimately like nothing gets done. Yeah, and then especially when you're you're discussing let alone two different organizations but two different governments basically trying to share information and share databases but especially sensitive information mm-hmm. then I think that complicates it even more because it's not even talking about okay, here's two federal agencies trying to share information. We're not even discussing that. <laughs> It goes beyond that, so I th- I am sure that makes it very complex trying to coordinate any sort of efforts for somebody who is missing or murdered. Absolutely. So, with that being said, there are a couple different reports that I found regarding sightings of Robert. There are reports from a couple that had seen a man resembling Robert walking along Young Road several days before the car was discovered. However, they waited until after the vehicle was found to report the tip to police. 
There was also a report prior to the car being found of a couple walking into a bar. The female splits off, goes to the restroom, while the male orders a drink and stands by a fireplace with his head down as to not bring attention to himself. When the woman comes out of the restroom, the two end up getting into an argument or fighting, and they leave the bar. There's then a sighting later that evening of the woman banging on somebody's door requesting to be let in, that she came up here with her boyfriend. They got into a big fight, and he just left her. Police were unable to track down this couple, and it leads to public speculation that there was possibly a affair going on with Robert Fisher and this girl and that he was running away from his previous family to basically live out the days with this girl and she helped him get away. Like I said, that one is highly speculation, which I don't like mentioning it, but if it has any value to it and if it has any truth, it's important to mention just because we don't know where Robert is. Okay. So... In the years following Robert's disappearance, people living in the old neighborhood reported seeing a man with his resemblance driving slowly through the area. And there's several other sightings throughout the United States and other countries like Canada and Mexico. However, most of those sightings have been basically debunked with IAFIS. Now... Outside of the sightings, a family friend had gone camping with Robert in the earlier weeks to the fire, and he recalled that they were in the same area that the truck was found later and believed that Robert had been scouting the area and kind of setting up a plan at that time, noting that he was very familiar with the location. Okay. So... On June 29th of 2002, Robert Fisher was placed on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list. However, on November 3rd of 2021, he was removed. There is no evidence to prove that he had aid from anyone, but with the car and the dog being abandoned, there is reason to speculate that somebody else might have been involved. That definitely uh, makes me think that there would have been something else to point towards if it was a carjacking, that there would have been some victim coming forward, that a man matching this description, you know, came attacked me or came up and grabbed my car while I was out of it or whatever. Uh, there, there, I would imagine have been some sort of victim or witness coming forward if it had been a carjacking as opposed mm-hmm. to if somebody had been helping him then obviously nobody's going to come forward and and discuss that. So it definitely seems odd that he could have hopped in another car and not had any victims or witnesses coming forward if it wasn't some sort of assistance. Yeah. And just as a reminder, like this is 2001 that this happened. Uber's not a thing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uber's not a thing yet. (laughs) Yeah. So... (laughs) Kind of leaves, there's a lot of speculation that somebody else might have been involved. However, like I said, there's no evidence to prove that he had aid from anyone. Law enforcement does believe that the motive behind these murders was a pending or possible divorce. Because Mary had basically started getting to a point that she had had enough in these fights that they were having. She was screaming at him that she knew that she could do better. And she would. 
Ooh, yeah. So not only is she threatening divorce, she's also basically showing she has the confidence not only to leave him, but to find somebody better than him, which I'm sure was a big strike to his his pride. There's a lot of things to be said about that. And if you are leaving an abusive relationship, please keep in mind that you need to go somewhere safe. You need to kind of unfortunately leave where you're at and go somewhere else and make sure that you are safe. People know where you're at and you are getting taken care of. The organization that we do list in this podcast in our trigger warnings and also in our sources does have a lot of information regarding developing safe exit plans and strategies because the most dangerous point in leaving a domestic violence situation or an intimate or an intimate partner violence situation is the point that you leave. Yeah, and definitely consider as well if you're going to be accessing these kinds of resources where you're concerned if you're in an abusive relationship that you don't want yeah, your abusive partner to discover you're accessing these resources, some good ways to try to get around that is there's some web browsers out there that automatically erase your browsing history as soon as mm -hmm. you get out of them. Those are good to use or think about going to maybe a public library somewhere where you're not using your personal device that the abusive partner may be able to access and instead you're using a public device where you go on, you, you do your web search, you get whatever information you need and then you log off and you leave. Uh, try to do your web searching in as safe a manner as you can and, and try to protect your your privacy when it also comes to using technological resources like the internet. Yes, absolutely. DuckDuckGo is an amazing web browser. Yes, it usually definitely. deletes your history as you go. However, my new favorite button on there to push because I use DuckDuckGo is that there's a little flame icon up in like the top right corner. And when you push it, it gives you different animations of like spaceships blowing up your tabs or like fire burning it away. So <laughs> outside of it being a safe source to use, it's also very entertaining to do. <laughs> but yes, please keep in mind that there are safe browsers out there. DuckDuckGo is an amazing one and I highly recommend that one. If you cannot access a safe browser or if you're afraid of putting that on a device and starting questions with your significant other that is abusing you, please, like Risa, go to somewhere that is local, like the library, access things there. And if you're calling these agencies, please make sure that you are deleting the number after you call and you're calling from a safe space where you're not being monitored. Definitely. All really important things to think about to stay safe in these kinds of situations. Absolutely. So continuing on, a FBI behavioral profiler believed that Robert has what is easily described as jackal and hide personality. Now, this is where an individual wants to come across looking like a good person, having good intentions, being a family type of person, like your hierarchy citizens, like your <laughs> your good Samaritans, unfortunately. Um, but they can't stay away from the darker sides of life. So with Robert's case, he was looking like the average family man. 
He loved his kids. He loved his wife. However, on the darker sides, he's going to illicit massage parlors, possibly strip clubs. And he is gutting and wearing the blood of animals. Oh, yeah, that's pretty dark. <laughs> that's pretty dark. Uh. So keep that in mind that those are things that have come up as well through this investigation. When you discuss the darker sides of life, could that even include things like divorce? You know, you've committed to spending the rest of your life with this person, and now there's this impending idea that that might not be working out, and you might lose that. Would that also be considered a potential factor, or is that not quite dark enough to fall I, into that category? I would not say that that falls into the darker side of life. That falls into okay. the shitty side of life, that that really okay. sucks, but... <laughs> No, I would not say that falls into the darker side of life. The darker side of life is usually your illegal activities, your affair styles with your relationship where you don't necessarily want to leave something, but you also don't know how to, per se. Yeah. I don't know if that's the right way to put it. But it's usually the sides of things that are, like, considered really, really bad, like we'll see more Jacqueline high personalities as we go forward with like serial killers, for instance, because they have the dark triad, which if you don't know the difference between the McDonald's triad and the dark triad, I will definitely be explaining that in my next episode. So make sure you stay tuned, but it's those types of things that it's addictive and it's not good for you. I see. Okay. It's killing and harming people. It's killing and harming animals. It's those types of things. Mm -hmm. Things that are like, oh, you should not be doing that. Yeah. Okay. And not to say like going to strip clubs is a bad thing to do. Like if you're in the single lifestyle, you're not committed to somebody or if you're committed to somebody and they're okay with it. Like, oh yeah. Props to you. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But it's, Going against somebody's trust and doing things that you know could emotionally, physically, or mentally harm somebody. Yeah, for sure. And then hunting's okay too, but maybe don't start smearing the yeah, blood. Yeah, let's not smear the blood on your face, okay? We're not in a sci fi movie. We're not hiding from pe- Predator, even though that's not the way that you do it anyway. <laughs> don't go swimming with a Bowie knife, okay? That just sounds unsafe. (laughs) Like, I'm a good swimmer, but I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. If I'm swimming with a knife in my mouth and my head above the surface, I'm going to look like a drowning seal. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, there are a couple speculations and theories that we'll go through real quick. But people do speculate that Robert may have used the caves or the systems around him like the canyons but mostly the caves to cover for searches before escaping and beginning a new life there are others that think that he went into the cave systems to take his own life or somehow did not make it out alive now investigators do note that a lot of these systems look like simple holes and often some just dead end Others in the area span out in no clear direction, running for miles underground. 
I was just gonna say, and cave systems, as we've discussed before, can be very dangerous places as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so I really think any of those could be a possibility, depending on how well he knew the environment and how experienced he was in traveling in that environment. It is possible he could have used it to try to cover his tracks because it would be very difficult, I would imagine, to track somebody through a system like that, especially if you don't know where they popped in and popped out. But then I also think it could be just as likely that uh, going into a remote place to commit suicide or even going in with the intention of coming back out, but getting into some sort of really dangerous situation that uh, he was not able to make it back out of, for sure. Absolutely. And one investigator is quoted as saying, literally, what we're standing on is honeycombed underneath us, which I think is absolutely chilling and super accurate for cave systems in America. Sewer cameras and gas grenades were brought in to look through the terrain because it was really tough and it was hard to get in there for any experienced cave experts. And it was mainly to solicit any forms of life that might be in those cave systems. Detective Heinzelman states that there may be a possibility that he fell into something and that he hurt himself and couldn't get out. He also noted that the cave groups that searched never found any signs of remains in connection with Robert in the cave systems. Another popular theory is that he left the woods fleeing to the Native American reservation where officers cannot enter without an escort due to sovereign nation status. It's also important to remember that this is prior to 9-11 and the borders were not as secure as they are today and prior to any TSA or heightened security for travel at airports. So it's very possible that he could have traveled around the country or boarded a plane or even driven to Mexico or Canada for that instance too. One thing that is noted upon is that investigators don't even have Robert's full DNA profile. They do, however, have Robert's fingerprint cards from his time in the Navy, which I do presume oh. is in either APHIS or IAPHIS. However, okay. I'm unsure of their status, but I'm pretty sure they're in at least one of those. There are still possibilities that Robert might be an unidentified person in another county, or he was arrested and charged, but he had a different name in association with them. There are so many different twists and turns to the story in case, but one thing is for sure is that Robert Fisher is still wanted to this day. It's been over 21 years since the murders of Mary, Brittany, and Bobby, and the FBI is still looking for answers. Robert is described as physically fit and is an avid outdoorsman, hunter, and fisherman. He has a noticeable golden crown on his upper left first bicuspid tooth. He may walk with an exaggerated erect posture and his chest pushed out due to a lower back injury, along with a surgical scar on his lower back. He is known to chew tobacco heavily, has ties to New Mexico and Florida. He is also believed to be in possession of several weapons, including a high-powered rifle. However, they do not mention the brand or caliber for this rifle on the FBI site. Robert is considered to be armed and extremely dangerous. 
If you have any information regarding Robert Fisher sites, tips to be submitted, you're asked to call the FBI's Phoenix office at 623-466-1999. One more time, that is 623-466-1999. And just as one final note, there is a national human trafficking hotline now. And the number is 1-888-373-7888. You can also send text messages by using the number 233-733 and text help or info. That number, one more time, for the National Human Trafficking Hotline is 1-888-373-7888. Eight, eight, or text 233-733-HELP or info. Now, I think Rhee and I are both wondering what happened to Blue, and I want to end this on a better note. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I want to know what happened to Blue. Okay, we actually have a full article on Blue, just him, himself, and I. So, it is theorized that upon Robert leaving him, he was originally left inside the vehicle with the windows down for air. Eventually, when the dog became hungry, he jumped out of the vehicle and sniffed a porcupine. And this is unfortunately when he got hit with some of those quills. Oh. Being unable to jump back into the vehicle because of the windows being too high off the ground, he took shelter underneath it. Upon the discovery of the scene, Officers did try to catch him, but had no luck as the dog would retreat with distrust. Aww. Making no headway, Payson veterinary technician Patty Blackmore was called. She and a friend drove to where the law enforcement had their perimeter set up. They had coerced Blue out with a few pieces of donut, and she was able to slip a leash over his head, successfully capturing the dog. She injected him with a tranquilizer so she could transport him to the veterinary, and she pulled out around 75 to 100 quills from his nose. Oh, that's a whole lot more than I realized. Yeah. Dang, that must have hurt. That's rough. Ow. Poor Blue. I know. Once oh. the public learned of Blue being left alone and his background story, adoption offers poured in however blackmore was firm with he was not up for adoption as the family had asked her to keep him and she did she kept his original name but would often refer to him as duck because of a weird noise he'd make when his mouth was open and he was settling down <laughs> which i have to say the number one thing i miss about like my black lab is that she always used to sit down and she used to do the <laughs> when she did oh my god i love it i, I love, love it, it. <laughs> so blue lived for another 12 years after being found in the tonato national forest but he did unfortunately pass away at the age of 14 but he did leave his previous family and his new family with a lot of wonderful memories oh so from what I could find, he had an absolutely wonderful life after being found. 
Well, that's good to hear. I'm glad they were able to find Blue and give him a good life after all the trauma the poor dog went through. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm like, literally, I was scrolling through these news articles. I'm like, what happened to the dog? <laughs> <laughs> those are important details. <laughs> I'm the person that when I sit down to watch a horror movie and at first I like see the dog on the screen, I have to pause that movie. I'm like, I'll be right back because I have to go Google and see if the dog's going to die. <laughs> I'm like, I, I don't have the emotion, emotional handle to actually deal with doggy death. Okay. <laughs> I feel that. Yeah, I'm not I'm not a fan of doggies dying and. In movies, even if they're fictional, I, I still don't want to see the dog. I don't want to see that. I don't want the doggies. No doggies get hurt. dying. No, no doggies getting hurt, please. A side note to also help us end on a happier note. <laughs> I hope the microphone didn't pick it up too much. I'm pretty sure it picked it up at least a couple times, but I let my dog stay in the room for the recording tonight, and <gasps> he is snoring in the background. So at some <laughs> points, it probably picked up on doggy snoring. So if you listeners hear any strange noises in the background, that's just my dog sleeping peacefully behind me <laughs> and snoring very loudly. <laughs> <laughs> that's way too cute. <laughs> so before I move into our closing outro music I wanted to come in here and say thank you to whoever gave us a big shout out over on Instagram my phone has been blowing up with notifications for new followers and basically recommendations since earlier last week and I'm amazed. We've gone from being at like 20 followers to now we're almost at 60 and it's still growing. So thank you so much to whoever decided to give us a shout out. I really appreciate it. And I know Rhiannon does as well. On a secondary note, if you recommended the case of Robert Fisher or somebody else that was a family annihilator in the Arizona area, please reach out to us on hauntingcasespodcast at gmail.com. You are a client of my father's. He gave me the information regarding the case but he didn't like give details as to names of perpetrators or victims and i want to make sure that i also give coverage to your case so if that was you please 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 reach out to us email us let us know that case but otherwise i will see you all next week thank you again for listening to haunting cases podcast please make sure to follow us on facebook and instagram at Haunting Cases Podcast and on Twitter at Haunting Cases. If you have a listener tale, story request, or any questions, email us at hauntingcasespodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast from. So, what do you say, listeners? Are, Are you haunted, haunted too? too?